happy Independence Day weekend. Uh, I know there are a lot of festivities going on, fireworks displays and things like that. I would just encourage you to be safe in the process. Um, <clears throat> we had last year, uh, even though you're not supposed to be shooting off fireworks in uh, Canal Winchester in the city limits anyway, <clears throat> we had some neighbors that uh, thought it would be fun to put them in mailboxes and set them off and things like that. And a few cars and houses were hit and things like that. So um, hopefully none of you are involved with that type of stuff. But um, yeah, we, we look forward to this weekend all the time. Um, my wife and I, family, we like to go down to Groveport uh, on the 4th to watch the fireworks there. So um, anybody go to Red, White, and Boom? Did that actually happen? I know there was a thing about nobody. Wow. Okay. So I don't want to get messed up in that crowd. So, but I am glad I'm here with you today with, um, uh, with this holiday weekend upon us. It's hard to believe we're in the middle of summer. We're here in July. And uh, next thing you know, uh, the snow will be falling. So, yeah, no, it, it, that's going to take a while. But I always look forward to the fall. So when, I, when I, we get to July, I'm thinking, hey, I just got to make it through July and August. And then it's September. And of course, September sometimes turns out to be really warm. But, um, but we look forward um, to the rest of the summer. And we look forward to continuing in the study of the book of John. Um, I, uh, while I was away for eight weeks... Um, I was able to listen into a few of the messages as well as attend other churches, and uh, it is. It, 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 I felt like, oh, I want to be there for that. Oh, what? You know, Greg's going to do Lazarus. I wanted to do Lazarus, you know, and you know. But it it, it really was neat to kind of you know hear the see the continuity as we're going through the book of John. You know, I was mentioning this morning to someone that one of the benefits of going through a, a book of the Bible is continuity. You know, you're building upon previous messages, previous texts. And that's what I'll be doing this morning, actually, as we look at um, John eleven fifty five through 12, 11. But before we go there, I'd like to actually draw your attention to the Old Testament, to uh, 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. In those passages, we are told a story about King David, who was commanded to erect an altar to God and to do so on someone's uh, threshing room floor. The only problem was is it belonged to somebody else. But David, when he went, um, the, gentleman, the gentleman in which uh, he spoke uh, was a Jebusite. He's known by a couple of different names, uh, Aruna or Ornan. And depending on which uh, book of the Bible that you're looking at the story, and Ornan basically says to David, um, in light of what he wanted to do, he said, hey, take it. It's yours. Um, the, uh, the threshing room floor, you can have it. In fact, you can have the oxen for the burnt sacrifice, for the burnt offering. And, and, and uh, the, the yoke that ties the oxen together, you can use that for the wood. David's response was pretty simple. If I could paraphrase it, it was, No. No, I'm not going to do that. What he actually said was, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David decided to pay him full price for everything. 
full price for the threshing room floor, full price for the, for the oxen, for the wood, for the fire. So what are we to take away from that? I, I think the lesson's pretty simple. I think the story illustrates that true worship ought to cost us something. It ought to cost us something. It's, it's not sufficient to offer to God somebody else's stuff. It doesn't please God to, 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 for, for us to do that, nor can we offer somebody else's heart to God. All we can do is offer our own heart to God. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a similar story about a woman who understood this. She understood that Jesus is worthy of costly, extravagant worship. So a couple weeks ago, as I mentioned, Greg uh, covered the, the bulk of chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus, which is an amazing story. He did a real good job with that. And um, I was talking uh, with someone this morning, too, about one of my favorite movies. Um, it goes way back, the greatest story ever told. Has anybody ever seen that? Max von Sydow played Jesus. He was kind of a different kind of Jesus. But one of my favorite parts of that movie was the resurrection of Lazarus. You know, Jesus had come there. He had, had uh, talked with Mary and Martha. He cries. He goes to the tomb and he stands there and the tension just builds, you know. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is looking at the tomb, you hear him say, Lazarus, come forth. Something like that, right? And, and in, you know, the music is building and you're looking into the tomb. The stone had been rolled away and it was dark. And the next thing you see is this gradual appearing of a mummy, right? Because it's Lazarus all wrapped up in his burial clothes. And then, of course, the, I think the hallelujah chorus kicks in, and, and it's just amazing. People are running everywhere telling, um, uh, telling them that Jesus had just uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. So all of that has taken place. That was all covered two weeks ago. And today, we find that Jesus could no longer walk amongst the Jews. He could not do it freely. He uh, was in a position now where actually um, he, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, were actually now seeking to put him to death. So Jesus, um, knowing that it was not quite his time, actually traveled about 14 or 15 miles uh, north of, of Bethany and Jerusalem here up to Ephraim, and he stayed there. That was on the edge of, of the Judean wilderness near Samaria, and he stayed there for a time until he decided to return to Bethany. And you have to wonder if the disciples were not having deja vu. Because if you remember earlier, when uh, Lazarus was sick, Jesus wasn't present. And Jesus stayed two days longer where he was when he found out that Lazarus was sick. And, and Jesus had said to his disciples that Lazarus is, is sleeping, but we must go to him. And, and their response, remember, Lord, if, if he's sleeping, he'll wake up. We don't need to go. I mean, in case you forgot, they were trying to kill you there. But they went. And 
now, after raising Lazarus from the dead, um, from that day forward, you know, they were more intent on arresting Jesus and killing him. And so the disciples probably felt a little bit of reprieve going to Ephraim to be there away from all of that when Jesus says, hey, we got to go back. So they went, and this is where our story picks up here. And um, John introduces to us the third and last Passover uh, in his gospel uh, here at the end of chapter 11. But John also introduces to us four common responses by four different types or, or, or kinds of people in this passage. And what I want to do is just take them one by one, go through the text, but I want us to ask ourselves an important question. So I want you to keep this question in the forefront of your minds as we go through uh, the message this morning. I want us to ask ourselves, what type of person am I? Of these groups of people that we meet that are representative, which am I most like? Which type of person am I? But before we begin, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity we have to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to do so. Uh, but Lord, um, more importantly, we thank you for the freedom that we have in you that we can be free from sin, free from self, and free to follow you and to do good. And Lord, I pray that you would just minister to our hearts here this morning, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, and that you would conform us to the image of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, you can open up verse 55. I'll have it up on screen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. John writes, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? The first group of people that John introduces us to here is what I would call the spectators. See, during the Passover, people would come from all over to Jerusalem. Um, they would come for the Passover. They would come early to prepare themselves for the Passover. People would come from different countries, from the countryside. Um, and uh, they would make Jerusalem swell in population. Now, the normal population of Jerusalem, I believe, was around 80,000. It was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. And it was, uh, had a, a permanent population of around 80,000 people. But according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to over 3 million people. So ask yourself, where do you put three million tourists? <laughs> I mean, that's the, they're there. Where, where do you put it? I mean, there were no hotels. You didn't have timeshares. There weren't any B&Bs. So where did they go? Well, many of them would stay with family or friends. 
Some slept out in the streets. Most would sleep out on the countryside outside the walls of Jerusalem. Um, But they stayed wherever they could, and it was just jam-packed full of people. And notice that John says that they were looking for Jesus. So all these people came from all over because Jesus' fame had spread far and wide, and they came looking for Jesus. And he had become very well-known, despite the fact that there were no newspapers, there was no radio, television, no social media, no planes, trains, and automobiles to be able to get back and forth and get word. But Jesus nevertheless became quite famous. And because the religious elite were looking to arrest Jesus and and put him to death, they were asking themselves while they were there in the temple, hey, do you think he's going to come? I mean, you could almost see pockets of conversations happening. Hey, you think, anybody see Jesus? Is Jesus coming? Do you think he's going to come? I mean, if, if he comes, what do you think will happen? I mean, you think they'll arrest him? You think, you know, geez, you, th- you think there'll be a riot? Oh, no, there'll, there'll be a riot? Oh, oh, wait a minute. What if Jesus comes? He might do another miracle and then make like Houdini, you know, and disappear. That last sentence they probably didn't ask because Houdini hadn't been born yet, but, uh, but you get the idea. Actually, the form of the question in the Greek indicates that a positive answer is in view. So we might translate it like this. He is coming to the feast, right? So there was, there was a sense in which there was an expectation that Jesus would come, but there was a little bit of uncertainty because of the events that transpired since Lazarus was raised from the grave. They're hoping to see Jesus, And we can relate to that, right? I mean, Jesus was a celebrity. He was famous. And and we love celebrities, right? I mean, we go crazy over... I mean, people... I still don't understand why so many people watch these videos online, you know, of people who they don't know. I mean, and they, they want to get all these likes and everything else. And, and, and you know, but we're, we live in an, in an obsessed culture with, you know, becoming known, becoming liked, becoming famous. And we will go to great lengths um, to see our favorite personality. You know, whether it's an actor, actress, you know, even a politician. A few years ago, uh, Mike Pence uh, was here. President, Vice President Mike Pence was here in Canal Winchester. And some, some people who found out about that, I mean, they made a beeline for downtown to go to the wigwam so that they could see uh, President Pence. Now, most of the time, we're not content with just seeing somebody in person, you know, from 300 yards away. We want to shake their hand, right? We, we want to get a selfie with them. We want to get a picture with them. Uh, when I went to the basics conference uh, with Alistair uh, Begg and Tony Marita and John Woodhouse, it was really neat because the guys were really humble and they would mix and mingle with all the other, you know, 1,500 men that were there, pastors and elders. And it was just interesting as you're walking down the hall, you're, you're seeing these guys getting their pictures taken with everybody. And I have to admit, I really wanted my picture with Alistair Begg. I wanted to come back here and show you, look, it's me and Alistair. We're hanging out together. We're best buds, right? 
You know that when it wasn't true, but, but, but there's something within us that just longs to, to be able to do that. And um, just to see somebody in the flesh who we see on TV all the time. Um, I actually have been given thought to going to Syracuse to go to the Dome um, to see Paul McCartney. And, uh, you know, I, I've always wanted to see, you know, Paul McCartney, even though I got albums and I've got DVD videos of concerts and things like that. And then I began to wonder, you know, why, why, why do I feel that draw to do that? Um, and I, it became clear to me that it was a little bit morbid because he, like, he's 80 years old. Um, and I figure, you know, he's going to die soon or I'm going to die soon and I'm going to lose this opportunity. Um, I don't think I'll be going. But the, the point is, even I'm drawn to that. My daughter, Ella, on another note, um, she, um, she kind of has this thing for a guy named Harry Styles. Anybody of you guys know who he is? You know, One Direction, used to be in One Direction. Anyway, she bought two tickets to his concert. And these were not cheap tickets. She bought two tickets just to see Harry Styles in New York City. So, I, you know, that's what I mean. You know, Pete, we're willing to do that. We will tra- we'll buy an airline ticket. We'll fork out bukus of bucks for a hotel. And then concert tickets, and then food, restaurant, you know, all that, just to see Harry. Anyway, um, as, as I was, you know, thinking, you know, uh, about this, you know, I, I, I realized that, uh, that I could be a wet blanket here because even after you get your picture taken with somebody, the reality is you still don't know them, <laughs> and they don't know you. And that's really the story of what's going on here in our text. These people were looking for Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. They didn't have a, a relationship with Jesus. They, they wanted to see him because he was famous, because he was a hit, and he was a celebrity. And, and from our study in John, we've learned that many people who were interested in Jesus were only interested in Jesus for what he could do for them. They wanted to see him perform another miracle. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be wowed. They loved seeing the miracles, but they weren't converted. They loved watching him, but they were unwilling to follow him. And in case you didn't figure, haven't figured this out yet, Jesus didn't come to earth to impress us. He didn't come to entertain us. He came to save us from our sin. And he demands that we repent of our sins. That we deny ourselves. That we pick up our cross and we follow him. That's what Jesus is after. Jesus hasn't commanded us to make spectators. He's commanded us to make disciples. So the question that I ask is, which are you? Are you a spectator? Or are you a disciple of Christ? Do you really know Jesus in a personal way? Or you just know about him? Like I know about Paul McCartney. (laughs) Or my daughter knows Harry Styles. We can know. We, We can have the facts down pat. But it doesn't mean that we have a personal relationship with Christ. Are you truly a Christ 
follower? Or are you merely content to watch from a distance other people following Christ? If that's you, if you're a spectator, I would, I would encourage you, repent and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Invite him into your life and tell him what he already knows. You're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you want to follow him the rest of your life. In verse 57, John introduces us to a second group of people. I call these the antagonists. Those who are hostile to Jesus. Now, this goes far beyond being a spectator. This type of person openly opposes Jesus, often with hatred and with rage. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, orders, that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This, this was less of a request and more of a threat. These religious leaders were so threatened by Jesus that they sought to kill him. Jesus was a threat to their power, to their position in the community, and to their prestige among the people. They couldn't stand seeing the people flocking to Jesus, even if it was just to see another miracle. Because every person that went to Jesus was one less person that was sitting in front of them. And they cared more about themselves and were hardened in their hearts that they were desperate to get rid of Jesus and any other obstacle that stood in their way. These types of people still exist today. People who are antagonistic to Christ, to the Christian faith, to our witness of him. And you see it everywhere. People who are threatened by Jesus and the truth of his word. They're threatened by those who follow him, who endeavor to live above reproach and, and, and live a holy, godly life, uh, whose character is exemplary. Their wickedness is on full display as the righteous do good, speak truth, and do good works. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, you, meaning us, those who have trusted in Christ, that we are the light of the world, right? But he also said that everyone who does evil hates the light and refuses to come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. So these people do not just merely reject the light. They oppose all who would shine the light of Christ or the light of truth into their life. That's why sometimes um, as we endeavor to live for Christ, that people can feel uncomfortable around us. I mean, have you, have you ever you know, been somewhere with, with a group of people, non-Christians, who happen to know that you're a believer, and, you know, somebody, you know, uses a cuss word, you know, and then the first thing out of their mouth, they go, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I uh, forgot we got a preacher here, or something like that, 
Oh, hey, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I'm you know, they're cognizant. There's a recognition that there's a difference between people who live for Jesus, who are endeavoring to live a holy and godly life, and the rest of the world. And the Bible tells us we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter opposition, when people are antagonistic towards us. Now, I doubt seriously that there's anybody here this morning who falls into that camp. I don't think you'd be here if you were antagonistic to Jesus. But there are at least a few of you who on Tuesday morning are going to go to work and you will walk into an environment that very well may be antagonistic to you and to the faith. And it's not like, you know, you have to go in there and preach the gospel for that to happen. All you have to do is be obedient to God in many ways, and they will notice. Like, for instance, when you tell the truth as opposed to lying. When you clock in when you're supposed to. When you clock out when you're supposed to. When you only take the amount of time you're given for lunch, for lunch. When you don't gossip, when you don't ridicule other people when you don't tell those dirty jokes. When you endeavor to do your job to the best of your ability. When you go above and beyond. People notice. People notice. And you know, you don't have to wear something on your forehead that says, I am a Christian. I mean, it's great if you're able to to share your faith in some way or share your grace story with somebody else, but just living as salt and light in this world is going to cause those who hate the light to have a visceral reaction, and you will face opposition. Jesus made it very clear. He says, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, that assumes we're living like Jesus. But he says, it's going to happen. It's not a question of of if, it's a question of when. And if we don't face some type of opposition in our lives, then we're either hanging out with the wrong people or there's something wrong with our Christianity. Scripture tells us that all, all, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a given. And if you intend to follow Jesus and live a godly life, you can expect it. But you know, that's not all bad news. Because Jesus said something in the Sermon on the Mount that I think we need to take to heart. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 10, this is what Jesus says. He says, blessed Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Notice it doesn't say for the sake of stupidity. For the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all sorts of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
See, those who follow hard after Jesus are blessed. I don't know about you, but I, I want God's blessing in my life. I want to be blessed. I want to live a blessed life. And, and here we see that we can rejoice and we can be glad even in the midst of persecution. Why? Because we know how the story ends. We, we know how the story ends. You know, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, Satan and his evil minions, they thought they won. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they thought they won. They thought it was over. But guess what? God won't be defeated. <laughs> Jesus' death on the cross was a part of the Father's redemptive plan to save a lost humanity. You know, these leaders intended this as evil. God intended it for good. Have you heard that before? God chose to use these people to bring about his purposes so that we might be saved. Our Savior was vindicated by the Spirit when he rose victoriously from the grave. His suffering, his death, his resurrection purchased our redemption and has given us hope. And as we follow Christ... We need to understand we will always have antagonists to face. But praise God, because Jesus has already won the war, we too walk in victory with him. In fact, that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Not sometimes, not most of the time, Always, he always leads us in triumph. And I love this part. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That's powerful. That, that even in the midst of suffering, pain, persecution, opposition, he leads us in triumph and he manifests through us this sweet aroma of the knowledge of God. So that even though while some are speaking evil of you, there are others who are taking note of your character, your work ethic, your love for Christ, your love for others, and it draws them to the Savior. The story continues in chapter 12. We read there in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Jesus had just left Ephraim, came back to Bethany, and a special meal was prepared for him there. Only it wasn't at Lazarus's home. Now, you don't see that in, in the book of John, but 
Matthew and Mark tell us that the meal was prepared in the home of Simon the leper. Now, we really don't know anything about Simon other than the fact that he was a leper. And apparently, at some point in the past, Jesus had healed him. It's kind of hard to imagine Jesus eating in his house if he still had leprosy. Jesus would have undoubtedly healed him then on the spot, but apparently he was healed earlier, and he invited uh, Jesus and uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus and others to join him for this meal. And no doubt, I mean, if you were, if you were Simon, uh, you'd be grateful for the healing, that you could even have people over to your home. So he was undoubtedly grateful for what Jesus did. And despite there being a warrant for his arrest, despite the fact that people were being threatened that if they know where Jesus was, they should report him, he didn't. And he had him over to his home. Now, Simon, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus represent yet another group of people who have a wholly different response to Jesus. So we've seen the spectators, the antagonists. Now we see the true worshipers. Those who know and truly love and worship the Lord Jesus. Now, in these three verses, we see a beautiful picture of three different people. Because Simon, really nothing is said about him. But we see a beautiful picture of three different people worshiping in three different ways. And for Martha, it's a much different picture than what we had at an earlier meal, if you recall. When she was preparing a meal once before, she was incensed that her sister wasn't helping. And she actually went to Jesus and accused him of not caring about it. She said, don't you care that I'm doing all this work all by myself? Tell her to come over here and help me. You don't see that in this passage. Martha is a different person. For her, service was no longer a menial task. It was an act of worship. And the truth is, with the right attitude, acts of service can be tremendously powerful acts of worship if you do it with the right attitude. You know, Scripture tells us that whatever you do in word and in deed, do it as unto the Lord. Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Martha has learned how to worship in her serving, but she's not the only one who's worshiping here. Lazarus is doing the same thing as he reclines at the table near Jesus. And, and this must have been an interesting sight. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall here too. Because, you know, no doubt you've got Simon there, you've got Lazarus there, you've got the other disciples there, you've got Jesus there, and you just have to wonder how did the conversation start? And maybe Simon kicked it off by saying, hey, guys, hey, I'm so glad that you guys came. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. I just want to, I got to tell you what Jesus did for me. Let me tell you how he healed me of my leprosy. And then he'd probably go on and tell the story. And then probably before he could ever finish, Lazarus then retorts, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to tell you about how he raised me from the dead. Let me tell you, that was no picnic. 
Something is going on here. But I believe that Lazarus was exactly where he wanted to be. Lazarus wanted to be near Jesus, to see him, to hear his voice, to share a meal with him, to reflect on what Jesus had done for him and to express his gratitude for all of his uh, mercy and grace that he extended to him. This too is an act of worship. And it's a pattern that I think we need to follow. And it's not one that comes easy to me. Because I'm a doer. I like to do things. I like to check off boxes. I like to make, feel like I'm making progress. I, I find, for me, preparing messages, giving messages, teaching Bible studies, shepherding people, leading the church, that, that's the way I, I, I worship. But there's something about what Lazarus has done here and is doing here that I need to learn and take to heart. I need to learn to be quiet before him. I need to learn to be still and just know that he is God. To bask in his presence and not always seek to be doing stuff. Nothing wrong with doing stuff with the right reasons, but I think God is, is more, much more interested in having all of me than he is in me winning all the world to him or achieving all the other things that I want to achieve for him. And I need to be able to enjoy him. And in fact, you know, when, when you ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What's the answer, Jared? What is the chief end of man? What? Yeah. I love the part to enjoy him and, you know, and glorify him forever. That's the chief end of man. It's to know him, to love him, to enjoy him and glorify him forever. And I think Lazarus understands that this is my opportunity to give Jesus my undivided attention. Now listen, we, we come here on Sunday mornings, we worship, but we should be worshiping every day. We can be worshiping God when we're changing dirty diapers or washing dirty dishes. We, we can be worshiping God when we're scrubbing the floors, taking out the trash, mowing the lawn, all sorts of things if our heart's in it. You know, earlier this morning, you know, we talked about it amongst the, the worship team as we got ready, you know, that, you know, we do this week after week after week after week. And it's easy to get into a rut. It's easy to become, well, this is just something that's on the schedule. This is something I have to do. You know, I have to do this. I'm the preacher. I've got to show up. The worship team, I'm on the schedule. I've got to be there. I've got to, I'm leading this part. I'm doing this. I'm do, you know, and you can reduce this. And, and even though we know we're serving, we can lose sight of the fact of why we're serving and who we're serving. Ultimately, as the scripture says, it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. And if we could understand that, if we, every time I stepped into this pulpit, every time the worship team steps up here, every time, you know, the media team gets back there and starts pressing all the buttons, 
and the people show up in the nursery to clean things up and the parking lot attendants put on their, their reflective jackets and things like that. I mean, if, if we did that and we said, you know what? Lord Jesus, I worship you. I serve you. I'm doing this because I love you and I love your people. Boy, would that be transformative. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're miles ahead of me, but I've got a, a ways to go. So as we look at this passage, um, we ought to be like Lazarus. We ought to desire to be near Jesus, to be with Jesus, to listen to his word, obey his voice, to reflect upon his faithfulness. We are commanded to remember him when we come to communion, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and as the writer of Hebrews says, to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, what's interesting to note, and by the way, I trimmed probably two pages off of my sermon this morning. I could have said so much more about this. But then I stopped the thing and I go, and that's amazing because just talking about Lazarus, he's inconsequential here. I mean, he's barely mentioned here. More attention is given to Mary, his sister, and what she does for Jesus. What a beautiful picture of extravagant love and heartfelt worship is that. Mary takes a pound of costly ointment worth about a year's wages, not quite, but almost a year's wages, and anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes them with her hair. Now, the kind of nard that she's using was extremely expensive. It came from northern India, and Matthew and Mark tell us that Mary came with an alabaster jar full of it and that she broke it and poured it on Jesus' head as he reclined at the table. Now, women were not usually allowed at the table. So Mary is breaking social custom, basically saying, I don't care what the custom is. I'm going to Jesus. I'm going to love Jesus. I am here to worship Jesus. And John tells us that, <coughs> excuse me. John tells us that she anointed his feet as well. And attending to the feet of a guest was something that a servant did. So Mary is demonstrating great humility and devotion to Jesus as she does this. She uses so much ointment that the fragrance filled the whole house. Now, another thing is, is that a woman letting down her hair in public was frowned upon. You didn't do that. It was an unthinkable act in that day, but she didn't care what others thought. So she unbound her hair and she wiped Jesus' feet with it. Again, what a beautiful picture of costly, extravagant worship. And Mary's actions stand in stark contrast to the last type of person we learn about in our story. I call them the imposters. If you look at verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, 
one of the disciples who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I find it interesting that John describes Mary's worship in one verse, but yet he takes five verses to describe Judas and Jesus's rebuke of him. I think what John is doing here is he wants us to see a contrast between Mary's devotion and the feigned allegiance to Jesus that Judas had. He complains about Mary's actions, says to her, hey, um, th th this was expensive stuff. We could have sold it. We could have used that money to take care of the poor. Judas didn't care about the poor. John made a, a point to say that he pilfered money from the petty cash. He wanted to line his own pockets I'll tell you, this isn't the kind of person you want to have as a church treasurer. I'm, I'm thankful for Andy. Andy, thank you, brother. You want to have godly men watching over the money, right? All Judas cared, cared about was lining his own pockets. He valued money more than Jesus, a fact that is made much more clear when you realize that later on Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in fairness to Judas, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but in fairness to Judas, I want to point out that he was not the only one who thought that this was a misappropriation of the ointment. Matthew tells us that when the disciples saw what Mary did, they too were indignant. In Mark chapter 14, we read, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, 300 denarii, a denarius was equal to a day's wage. So this was 300 days of work. Actually, it would have been more than a year if you only worked five days a week. But 300 days of wages was spent on this. And they thought this was a waste. Something else, something better could have been done with it. But I don't believe that, I mean, when you think about it, Judas could have influenced the disciples. You know, he could have been persuasive and then, then jump on board. But they also could have had a legitimate concern about the use of, these, uh, uh, of the nard, of the ointment. I think the difference between them and Judas is that Judas was insincere. He really didn't care about the poor. It was just a ruse. And we can see from Mark's account um, that Jesus' rebuke was not directed just at Judas. In Mark 14, verse 6, Jesus said, after they scolded her, they scolded her, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, when wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus accepts Mary's costly worship. Her love was indeed extravagant. And as such, Jesus declared that wherever this gospel is being preached and proclaimed, this act of worship would be told in memory of her as it is being done today. Why? Because it's a picture of how we ought to worship. Jesus is worthy of costly, extravagant worship. As I get ready to conclude, I want you to remember something. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He walked with Jesus. He listened to his teachings for three years. He ministered in his name Yet he did not know Christ. He went through the motions, but unlike Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his worship was counterfeit. And the only one who knew it was Jesus. I don't think Judas ever saw himself as an imposter. Can't be sure of that, but I I don't think he viewed himself that way. But there are many people like Judas in the church today. And most likely, they probably don't see themselves that way either. People who have professed faith in Jesus, been baptized, worship on Sunday mornings, maybe even attend a life group. But yet they don't know Jesus. They may even serve in ministry. It's been amazing to me over the years to see how many people not only serve in ministry, but pastor churches who do not know Jesus. How is that even possible? But it's true. It's easy for us to dismiss the idea that we might be like Judas. But ask yourself a few questions. Ask yourself, why am I here this morning? For some of you, it might simply be because it's what I'm supposed to do. It's what I've done every week before this. It's what my wife told me to do. Or my husband or my parents. Um, I'm not 18 yet. I can't do what I want, so I'm just here. Because I was told to be here. Maybe it's ritual. Maybe it's, it's tradition. Maybe, I know, I know for some people, uh, again, hate to say it, you know, there's some people attend church so that they can make their contacts for their job. There's all sorts of reasons and motives that people have 
for coming on a Sunday morning to worship, but what's your motive? Why are you here? Have you truly repented of your sins? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? I mean, you could be here. You could feel guilty. It's possible you could feel guilty and and even a sense of shame over things that you've done. But just feeling sorrow for something that you've done wrong doesn't mean you belong to Christ. Paul tells us, you know, that, that there is such a thing as worldly sorrow that leads to death. And there's such a thing as godly repentance that leads to life. And sometimes we confuse the two. Judas is a great example of that because at the end of everything, after betraying Jesus, he comes to the realization that he has sinned, that he did something terrible, evil, but he did not and could not repent at that point. He chose the route of worldly sorrow and went and killed himself rather than the route of repentance that leads to life. So where are you today? Let's conclude our time together by just reading the last three verses. Verse 9 says, when, large, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So now we come full circle, and the spectators are back in the picture. They got word that Jesus was nearby. They came to Bethany to see him in Lazarus. And, you know, Lazarus was now a celebrity too. He's, he's the, you know, the, the gone guy that came back. He's, he was the dead guy. He's now alive. And so he's a celebrity. And on, and on account of him, many people believed in Jesus. I just think, what? A, I feel sorry for Lazarus. I mean, the guy just came back to life and now the chief priests are looking to kill him. I mean, give him, give him a break. And, and it wasn't the fact that Lazarus was alive that troubled the religious elite. It was the fact that Jesus is the one who rose, raised him from the dead. And now Lazarus, in response to what Jesus has done for him, has become a beacon to other people. Not just because he's up and alive walking about, but because he loves Jesus, he worships Jesus, he wants to be near Jesus... And everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. His life, his love, and his devotion to Christ convinced others to follow him too. So let me ask you, how convincing is your life? How convincing is your love and your devotion to Christ? Do others see it? Are they being drawn to Christ as a result? And perhaps just a little bit of a warning here too is that if Christ has really worked in your life, again, this kind of goes back to the antagonists. Um, you can expect hatred. Lazarus, they, they were looking to put him to death again. And you know what? If we live for Christ, if we are compelling, if our life is compelling and people are drawn to Christ, you know, we're going to rack up a few enemies in the process. Just remember, we are blessed. 
So whether you came in here this morning as a spectator, an antagonist, or an imposter, you can leave as a true worshiper. Just bow your knee to King Jesus and say to him, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and today I am willing to turn from my sin and receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I want to live for you the rest of my life. And for those of us who know Christ, let me challenge you with this. Let us not offer to God that which costs us nothing. Take time this week to think about what that means and what that looks like in your life. Jesus is worthy of our love. He's worthy of our allegiance. And he is worthy of costly, extravagant worship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity to come here and to worship you. Lord, it's my prayer that if there be anybody here this morning that has not yet entered into a personal saving relationship with you, that Lord, today, that they would surrender their life to you, that they would be saved, that you would come into them and live with them and cause them to follow hard after you. Lord, as your people, as your church, we don't want to offer to you that which costs us nothing. So Lord, help us to think how we might, from this day forward, worship you in costly, extravagant ways that honor you and, Lord, transform our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.